2: Hi, this is Glenn Wexler, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast.
1: Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I get books on rock, rock and roll? Rock and roll.
2: Story's
0: true. Well, have you read this one? Read share, oh, madam, read book? This is a story that needs to be told. These oh,
1: rock and rollers want something to read. Shh.
2: Quiet, please. Hey, diggers. Welcome to another edition of the Rock and Roll Librarian. Uh, with me today, um, uh, I'm sorry. Who who are you?
3: I'm a librarian emeritus. That's right. You're not even a
2: librarian anymore.
3: No, I am. I am.
2: Oh, an, an emeritus. I'm a
3: return retiree. Return retiree. Yes, they yes. need me.
2: Shelly Sorensen, now librarian emeritus.
3: Yeah, I love that. I I'm, I gave that title to myself.
2: Um, i think we will bestow it upon you yes uh permanently uh you must use that in all rock and roll pantheon podcast uh official correspondence okay
3: all right all those official correspondings that i do yes yes
2: well well now that you're full-time uh rock and roll librarian (laughs) emeritus uh well that's not emeritus you're you're permanently yeah, the right yeah, yeah. Library. Uh, so. Active, active yeah. Yeah, employee. Yeah, yeah. So, so how are we doing today? We're doing good. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay.
3: Good.
2: Let's see. We're, I believe we're really going back in time today.
3: We are. We're going back to 19, early 1900s yeah, up the, through the, the 1930s and we're going to talk about Robert Johnson. The first
2: half of the century, of That's the 20th right. century. Yeah, which yeah. we don't often do uh, on our podcast. We've Focus mostly on the second half, the latter half of the 20th century and and into the 21st century now. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, all things spring from some well. And uh, as we all know, rock and roll uh, most definitely uh, comes uh, has a direct correlation to the blues. That's
3: right. Yeah. I mean, the blues are just. You know, there wouldn't be rock and roll without the blues. So no. We got to no, start there.
2: No. no I, the other elements are important. Country, gospel, mm-hmm. uh, folk, uh, things like that. Uh, jazz, uh, obviously. But in later iterations. But it all really starts with the blues, right?
3: Definitely. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: And Robert Johnson, uh, even probably the casual rock and roll fan and certainly blues fan, knows the name Robert Johnson.
3: That's right. And um, They may not have ever heard any of his works, but they certainly know he's important because many of our, uh, you know, Eric Clapton and uh, The Dead and um, all uh, kinds of people reference him. In fact, Eric Clapton did a whole album of Robert Johnson tunes. Yeah,
2: pretty much any band that has a remote blues side of them ends up, uh, you know, learning a Robert Johnson tune uh, sooner or later, wouldn't you say?
3: Right, definitely. Yeah.
2: And um, we're gonna prove that today.
3: <laughs> that's right. We are. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. A huge influence. But a very short recording career.
3: Right. Because he was the first, I think, member of the twenty seven club. Isn't that true?
2: Uh yeah, if you wanna consider that, yeah. He did die uh at twenty seven. And uh, really wasn't even discovered for like almost 20 plus years as important and significant as he became, especially to the rock and rollers uh, that emerged. And especially the English rock and rollers, the blues guys. Yeah, they love love American shit, don't they? Yeah, well, yeah. And and they're the ones that find it first uh, for some reason. Yeah. Especially if there's... You know, if there's a race issue, right, uh, you right. know, they're not hung up on all that stuff like we are. So no, not in the same uh, certainly way. not not at the time. Right. Uh, not, is, and
3: not is in the same way. Mean, yeah, you know, because yeah. they don't have that. Well, they, well, have they
2: don't their, have the legacy. that yeah,
3: uh, The that slavery yeah. have. on their oh, own land, one, yeah. at least. <laughs> yeah. 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 Maybe yeah. slavery in other parts of the world, but not uh, right in their yeah. country. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: So but uh, but let's start at the beginning, I would assume this Robert Johnson fellow. Tell us all about him.
3: Well, the book is called Up Jump the Devil The Real Life of Robert Johnson, and it's by Bruce Conforth and Gail Dean Wardlow. Now, Wardlow started researching Johnson up to about 50 years ago. And in fact, he was the person that um, discovered his death certificate or dug it up in 1968. Oh. And these Was that two a pun or unintentional? Dug it up. Oh, I get it. <laughs> it was unintentional. I mean, it was intentional. Yes. Yes. Just okay. go with it. Yes. Yeah. So um, the purpose in writing this book was that, um, you know, there's a huge- Wait a minute. Method- it took him
2: 50 years to write this book?
3: Well, he he started you know researching, and then I guess he teamed up with this uh, with uh, Bruce Conforth, and they decided to really get down and write this book. Mm-hmm. Their purpose in doing this was to kind of uh, look at some of the mythology around Robert Johnson and find out about what him. mythology
2: uh, I, he sold his soul to the devil. You got a problem with that?
3: Um, well, I kind of don't quite believe that, but that's okay, you know. <laughs> But anyway, what they want to do is really look into the, you know, do some actual historical and anthropological research and find out who Robert Johnson was as a person and find out factual information about him. And they interviewed a lot of people um, that really knew him well at that time over the years and, and hence, they also, hence the 50 years going right, back because yeah. most
2: of those people are long past uh, right you know i think and i think even his son who, claude claude uh who died in 2015 at 83 so that just tells you how long ago we're talking about yeah
3: folks. these these people that knew him are quite Elderly at this point. Yeah, Johnson was
2: born in 1911. That's right. And then dies in 1938 Mm -hmm. uh, at 27, as you said. And while he had a long performing career, it wasn't widely known. uh, And it was only in the last couple of years that he kind of became known. And I'm sure we'll get into that uh, with John Hammond and all the things that go along with that. uh, With only two... Recording sessions, uh, I believe, right? Yes, two recording sessions. But I'm I'm getting ahead of the story again here. Let's go back to 1911.
3: Down, boy, down. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, many people have written about Robert Johnson and done research on him, but... These authors feel that what happened was um, some of the authors and researchers and magazine writers and historians just um, served to further and build on some of the mythology that was already there. This pair of authors also dug into actual historical Information like uh, birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates, and and all those wonderful to, things
2: that are online nowadays yeah, and easy to get. Right? That's
3: right, and they matched them up to the stories that people were telling because you can imagine telling some remembrance of something that happened fifty years ago on somebody that you knew and you don't still have your date book or your iPhone that keeps track of the dates, you know. So are you
2: telling me the old blues guys didn't have iPhones?
3: No, and I don't Dang. think they even had day timers, you know. So, so, you know, I mean anybody would make mistakes, even about the year. I can't remember what year I did almost anything. So, you know, I I believe Unless that it's mistakes online. were made. Yeah. Right. So they're trying to return him to human form. And one of the reasons that he was very important was that he linked the older blues of Charlie Patton and Sun House and Lead Belly to the more modern approach of people like Muddy Waters and And, um, you know, the post-war blues. um, Mm.
2: But still retaining the acoustic uh, sound. He never went electric. No,
3: he never went electric, yeah. But he was quite um, proficient in all styles. The recordings we have of him are only blues, but he also could play anything that was on the radio. I mean, he was a musical sponge, and he had a great memory for sound and could reproduce it. Whenever necessary, you know, because he performed a lot. I mean, he was a professional musician, even though people of the time that didn't know him outside the Delta didn't really consider it that. Yeah, but we'll get more into yeah. that. Yeah, well so, let's
2: let's start off with trying to uh, show people where he came from. Uh, you know, maybe uh, play something from like Charlie Patton. Yeah, and give people an idea of you know what comes right before Robert Johnson. Okay, so how about we play Pony Blues? This sounds good.
1: It is in my pony my black man. My point I'm
2: songs are, you know, th- that particular song was recorded in 1929 in poor conditions. Right. Uh, so it is tough to kind of weed yourself through the scratchiness, the the difficult audio quality to kind of catch the essence of the song. But it's yeah. there. Yeah. It's definitely there. But just, you know, some of these songs are going to be, uh, you know, from a, a, an earlier period of uh, recording and most of them not like in recording studios i mean literally you know set right. up in a house or Motel a hotel rooms, or something like yeah. that so
3: right what you can hear here is that robert johnson was influenced by of course is the delta finger style guitar playing and often these guys would would play in pairs and have a um oh, a you know a second guitar a, behind yeah. them and yeah. then and yeah. then do the picking, um, themselves but let's go back to robert johnson's uh, beginnings he was like you said born in uh 1911 in hazelhurst mississippi which was a little bit of a more more liberal part of the delta and his uh family background was uh, some of his relatives had mulatto heritage so they were you know treated a little bit better than other black people that's just the way it was By as al- fucked up as that is that's right that's and just it's still, the way it was <laughs> still happening today, Um, his biological mother uh, was named Julia, and she already had several children when Robert was born, but her husband, whose name was Charles Spencer, was run out of town because of some rumor, and he had to actually leave Mississippi and move to Memphis and change his name so that he wouldn't be killed. I can't remember what the the issue was, likely sex or money, but... um, (laughs) <laughs> then Julia met somebody else who was Robert's biological father, and his name was Noah Johnson. But that relationship quickly went south, and Julia was left with several children, among them her new baby, Robert. And was having a really hard time scraping by. So she ended up sending Robert and some of his older siblings to her ex-husband, Charles Spencer, in Memphis. And so a lot of people don't know this, but Robert grew up um, until the age of nine in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, it was much more yeah, the, the big city, yeah. Much more liberal open, and you know he got a good education because mm-hmm. that was really big in Memphis at that time, and yeah, which he, means
2: he could read and write.
3: Yeah, he could mm-hmm. read and write. He studied every subject that they offered, including music. So he had a good background in music, and also soaked up all the musical stuff that was going on on Beale Street in those days, and mm-hmm. we know about Beale street, you know, was a very vibrant musical scene. So he had a, a really good first few years of his life until his mother came to fetch him when he was about nine, and she had remarried a sharecropper. And so she took him back to Mississippi, and they expected Robert to farm, and Robert was having none of that because he'd grown up that a city boy. Shit, yeah, right, he's right. like, fuck that shit. I'm not. I'm not doing cotton. Mm-hmm. So he kept running away back to Memphis, and he kept refusing to work and would get beaten by his new stepfather. But one good thing about it was that he was introduced to the cotton field blues. Which um, was very exciting for him because that's not something he heard in Memphis. That was based, you know, guitar based and played um, on the plantations. And they had these um, places called jukes, which were often people's homes or country stores or whatever where they could
2: join.
3: At first, they just made food and hosted musicians, but then, of course, they started selling liquor and all that stuff. So um, by the time he was 15 in 1926, he had um, become a musician. He could play many different instruments. Actually, harmonica, jew's harp, um, piano, which he had learned in Memphis, and um, started to make his own very crude guitar, which they called a diddly bow, which they strung wire onto the outsides of buildings and would use, or you know, a rake handle or something. Would use soda bottles to um, help, you know, with kind of do a, a slide guitar kind of thing and then his his half-sister Carrie came down from Memphis and was really supported him in his music and helped him buy a, a real guitar
2: eventually oh yeah so okay. that was that's when his professional life kind of began
3: right when he had a real guitar and he could start playing around and following people and and learning from other people so
2: 19, one of, 1926 so he's 15 right Okay.
3: And so one of the people he learned from was somebody named Willie Brown.
2: Oh, yeah. Who was uh musical partner of Sunhouse. Yeah, mm-hmm. and
3: he actually played behind Sunhouse and Charlie Patton as well. He was, you know, the supporting guitar, but he was very talented. Mm-hmm. And Robert, you know, followed him around and they became friends and he taught him something of what he knew. And later he named him in a recording. Do you remember Willie Brown in any of the...
2: Crossroads.
3: Yeah. And so that's pretty cool. Um, he didn't actually ever do Crossroads blues. Uh, well, nobody remembers him performing that, you know, live, but he must have because well, that was one recording. of the first things yeah. he recorded. Yeah. And people often point to this song as one of the ones that supports him selling his soul to the devil, but he never really talks about the devil in this song. But there's a lot of black. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, the lyrics don't mention um, right. uh, said Satan, but... Uh, yeah,
3: yeah, there there is some folklore about Crossroads um, that was... Specifically, African folklore about if you go to the crossroads, first you have to go to the cemetery. And, you know, it's a very involved um, folk tale about going to the cemetery and getting some dirt and then going to the crossroads like nine days in a row. And then the devil will make you an excellent. Now At this, anything
2: this, you uh, want. This, sound, this sounds Caribbean in nature up through New Orleans uh, into the Delta. Yeah, you got your hoodoo Via going voodoo. On. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Definitely.
3: The, the, the I thing. mean, that was really big yeah. in the Delta, yeah. actually, because some of these people had come directly from Africa yeah. or had grandparents, you know, that came from Africa. And it yeah. was syncretized with the Christian religion, you know, to build this really rich Yeah folklore um so let's play
2: well here here let's do this let's play Robert Johnson's Crossroads Blues and then we will transition into probably the most famous version of this song and that's by uh by Cream so let's play uh let's play a little of those okay So that, that first uh, uh, version, uh, the Robert Johnson uh, original version, uh, was recorded on November 27, 1936. And then that cream version, that's actually a live version from March 10, 1968. Mm-hmm. So, you know, awesome. just again, what we want to show is just this lasting influence that Robert Johnson has uh, in there. Um, we were talking about before uh, was... The folklore uh, side of things, especially for the poor folks of the uh, the Mississippi Delta and the richness of that folklore. And uh, it's not surprising that uh, the mythology of Robert Johnson, you know, grew into, uh, you know, some tool of the devil, wouldn't you
3: say? Right. And I think the point of the authors is this wasn't specific to Robert Johnson. Often, you know, blues was well, equated well, with devil's music. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. And there was this folklore about the crossroads, and then he just got, they just plugged him into that. Well, you, you know. either
2: played uh, religious or sectarian music or secular music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you chose to not play the church music, you were, you know, obviously under the spell.
3: of right. The devil. And that, and that, Boy, uh, riff You hear me? in in black
0: spell
2: of
3: the devil oh no that rift in black uh families and communities kind of continued until well i don't know maybe it's still happening in some communities but
0: oh
2: no i've heard from until ray charles ray charles put it all together and made it perfectly acceptable to everybody Uh, i don't know about that
3: No there has been you know families that were have been torn apart by this kind of division between blues and gospel for example and um well
2: I don't think it's just music but uh you know yeah uh religion tends to get in the way of uh fun. Pe- of the non believers uh <laughs> you know it's okay. Yeah, you know, it's okay. You can believe whatever kind of crazy shit you want to. Just don't make me try to believe in that's whatever right. the crazy shit is you believe in. Everybody believes in crazy shit. So uh-huh. let me have my crazy shit. You have your crazy shit. Right. We're all good with our crazy Music
3: shit. Music is my religion. That's right. Um, yeah. so the he, only
2: religion that actually gives back.
3: He was playing professionally, um, you know, making money at parties and dances by the time he was 17. And he was traveling around to different jukes and people, you know, he realized, oh, he could avoid field work Attract more attention from young women and pick up some spending money by playing his guitar. And that's just what he did. He would get maybe $5, a concert, food and whiskey, and then women throwing themselves at him.
2: Is there a better life? I don't know.
3: I don't know. Maybe the muses could find one of these women and (laughs) and interview them. Because apparently this has gone on for many, many, many years. I
2: think they have and do and will. Yeah. Yeah. Music is a powerful aphrodisiac. That's right.
3: <laughs> um, so by 1929, which was the year my father was born, he was only 18, but he married a 14-year-old girl from a nearby town, and her name was Virginia. And he was totally in love. He put aside his musical career to become a sharecropper to support his wife. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's okay, pretty I big. didn't know
0: that. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean,
3: this was when he was still young and idealistic. So she became pregnant soon after they got married. And when her due date was close, she went to move in with her family while Robert stayed behind on the plantation. But without her there, the lure of music became too strong and he went back out on the road again. And tragically, while he was on the road, she gave birth and died in childbirth along with her baby, Mm -hmm. their baby. And um, you know, now so that'll give you the blues. Yeah, it's really sad. You know, he's eighteen. He, you know, of course, fourteen is pretty. Young. I'm not surprised she had a difficult labor, but the story is that he was in Rosedale at the time of uh, her childbirth, and later on, he put Rosedale I mean, into Crossroads, a famous yeah. song, "Traveling Riverside Blues." Right. Well, it's, and, it's in Crossroads
2: as well. Yeah, but, and yeah. it's yeah.
3: also uh, refers. Kind of this song is good to play at this point because, uh, you know, it's a hallmark of actually what he did for the rest of his days, which was to travel around. And that's why he wasn't there with his wife is because he was traveling.
2: All right. So once again, a little uh, traveling Riverside Blues by Mr. Robert Johnson. And we're going to transition into, uh, let's see, this English band. Hmm. They were kind of big for a while. What were they called? Uh
0: well, Something you're... about a balloon. Led Zeppelin. Ah, uh, Led Zeppelin. If your man
2: get burdened, no. Won't you have your phone?
3: If your man
1: get burdened, no. Won't you have your phone? Come on back to Pride Point Mama.
3: One of the other tragic things about this was that because he was on the road, he didn't know that they had died. (laughs) And he didn't think to check in. There was no telephones. Uh, Um, I'm sure word got to him. So, Uh, of course, uh, he was heartbroken, but it was also compounded. And this was kind of the beginning of his turning his back on religion because he was condemned by her family for being away. And they attributed what had happened to her because he played evil music. So they, you know, instantly went, she died because you're playing the blues, you know, basically. So he came to kind of believe it, you know, self, like blame himself, and he turned his back on the church at that time. And somebody, uh, a quote from one of his friends was, every time he'd get drunk, he'd cuss God. He'd go to cursing God out, and he'd empty a house quick, because no one wanted to be around him. They were afraid that God would strike him, and they would be stricken too. So, you know, that was kind of like people would shy away Uh, from him. And so the mythology
2: begins. Yes,
3: yes. So then he decided to stay in the Delta um, to watch and learn from people like Charlie Patton and he was who was already a recording star and also Sunhouse who um, was just released from the penitentiary and that was a different style than Robert was used to. He was used to standard folk tunes in you know on the plantations and these guys Sunhouse particularly played really sweaty bottleneck dance blues. And this is something that, you know, that Robert was really attracted to. So at this time, he he went south to a town called Hazelhurst to see if he could find his biological dad. And instead of finding his biological dad, he found somebody named Ike Zimmerman, who nobody's ever heard of, um, who was an incredible guitar player and, of course, unfortunately, was never recorded but everybody who knew him attests to the fact that he was a virtuoso on guitar. And so Robert moved in with him and his family and uh, kind of apprenticed to him during that time. And at the same time, he met another young woman named Virgie May, who also became pregnant. And she went away to live with her relatives, and they wouldn't, even before the baby was born, they wouldn't let Robert see her or the baby. And she is the mother of his son, Claude, who, as you mentioned, yeah. passed away recently. So that was another big loss for him. You know, he met someone else he was yeah. in love with. He was kept apart from her because of his. he was a musician, and he had a child that he was not allowed to see. So he incorporated all this into his, first, his, his alcoholism, because certainly he was... A huge drinker and also his womanizing and his recommitment to music because it was something, you know, that never let him down. So he went back to Robinsonville and decided to try to cut uh, Sunhouse's head, cut somebody's head. That means, yeah,
2: uh, beat him up, show him up up, uh, musically. Kind of a a uh, duel. Yeah. And uh, take over the seat.
3: Yeah, and Sunhouse was quite impressed with Robert even at that time and um, tried to warn him about, you know, okay, I can tell you really are a great musician and you're going to be in trouble with women and their husbands, boyfriends, and fathers if you don't watch it, because he could tell Robert was very interested in women no matter the age, shape, size, <laughs> what. It's just like he would just be attracted to a woman, try to get her, and then leave. Uh-huh. So that was kind of his, uh-huh. his thing, his M.O. So um, they were dangerous places, these jukes, and there was a lot of drinking and a lot of women. And, you know, that was kind of what he got caught up in. So the next song we're going to talk about is something that um, Johnson also recorded later in his life. Um, which was Sweet Home, Chicago. And we can hear an example of him using, one of the interesting things about him that Sunhouse and Charlie Patton didn't do, and he was one of the first people to do it, was to use the piano, the left-hand boogie bass pattern of the piano, which I, I assume he heard in Memphis, and apply it to his guitar playing. So this is a really good example of of
2: that. Okay. So he did travel a, a fair amount. Uh, oh, yeah. Did he make it to Chicago? I Later. Remember. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But not at this time. Okay, no. Although, of course, the first recording was near the end of his life here in 1936. So, right. Uh, uh, all so right. I'm so I'm just
3: using this as an example. He started using yeah. the boogie bass yeah. pattern on the guitar okay. around this time. Yeah.
2: Well, again, to uh, show uh, the immense influence this guy had, not only are we going to play uh, Robert Johnson uh, doing Sweet Home Chicago, But we're going to play the Blues Brothers doing Sweet Home Chicago. I love
3: that rendition.
2: man love that movie
3: yeah that's a super movie and yeah. don't forget to listen to andy king uh his uh, cover that on real yeah, rock
2: that's right that's right good plug thank you hey we're <laughs> halfway in you just made you just made our ad
3: oh good Whew. well also i wanted to um kind of reference people to the let it roll podcast when they did uh nate wilcox interviewed elijah Wald, who wrote another book about robert johnson called escaping the delta robert johnson and the invention of the blues
2: lots just of good stuff to That
3: yesterday and so check it out people yeah
2: lots of good stuff on the pantheon podcast network That's to be right. found
3: and we're all overlapping and teaming up
2: well we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back all right, we're back. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like it's the beginning or anything. No. So let's see, uh, you uh, were talking to Nate uh, Wilcox, is that right?
3: Oh, yeah, I just, uh, you know, uh, over chat. Yeah, he yeah. was saying, oh, don't forget to, you know, read this book. And I said, how about if I listen to the podcast instead? There so you that go. was really cool.
2: That's the way you do it.
3: Yeah, very good interview. Um, so uh, next in uh, 1933, Robert traveled around and he moved to Helena, Arkansas, so he, unlike other Delta blues musicians of the time, had already started his habit of traveling wherever he could get gigs and make money. And most of the blues musicians kind of stayed in their region, but Robert was going afield. And he, uh, Helena was a bigger city. He got a regular gig at a juke called The Hole in the Wall. I, I That's a pretty common name for a bar, I suppose. yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And he played with big names like Elmore James and Sonny Boy Williams in the second. And there was blues, you know, in Helena, seven nights a week. And he could even play popular tunes of the day, which made him very popular with the audiences, such as Yes, Sir, That's My Baby. We're not going to play that one right now, though. And uh, so he was very adept at reproducing recent radio hits, and while he was there, he met a woman named... So he Est- could do it all, basically. Yeah, he could do it. It was like a human jukebox. Yeah. He moved in with a woman named Estella Lockwood um, and her son, whose name was Robert Lockwood, who later became a pretty well-known oh, a blues, blues musician. Yeah. yeah, and he um, actually attached himself to Robert Johnson, and Robert Johnson became a mentor even at that young of age. And, of course, he was dating this kid's mother, uh It was like the very much younger stepfather kind of thing. Anyway, so Robert Lockwood was playing the piano at the time, but when he heard Johnson, he liked the fact that Johnson could play independently of a backup guitarist. So like, he could
2: do both the leads and the rhythm and, at the same yeah, time. Yeah, at the same
3: mm-hmm. time. And so he you know, paid it forward with Lockwood the same way his sister had with him and many other, and other musicians, which he helped Robert make a guitar and showed him how to play, and Robert went on to travel around with Johnson a little bit bit and then ended up on the road with sonny boy williamson so, oh
2: yeah and little yeah. walter and others yeah
3: yeah so um i thought we could play something by robert lockwood that um robert johnson also recorded but lockwood did later it's called "Walkin' blues
2: yeah let's do that and we'll just do robert lockwood's version here i believe he is the only actual person that you know is credited as you know learning from robert johnson
3: Mm, mm -hmm.
2: All right, so Walking Blues by Robert Lockwood. No, yes, Yes. Walking Blues by (laughs) Robert Lockwood.
3: Everybody's name is Robert. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) song of uh, the blues. Yeah, originally
2: Sun House, a Sun House composition.
3: Yeah, it was um, actually um, what I found interesting about this time of playing the blues was actually most most blues musicians of this day, especially in the Delta, they didn't kind of uh, uh, set their compositions in stone. It was more like telling a folk tale. You changed it, you know, you didn't sing it twice the same way. And one thing that was unusual about Robert Johnson was that he did consider his compositions. So even though, for example, Sun House recorded a song named Walking Blues, um, Robert johnson robert lockwood whatever you know people would change it around and make it their own oh yeah um yeah that was very common yeah uh
2: you know it would you know you'd have these song catchers guys would go out there and they'd find a song they'd come back uh, bring it to the talent and then they might even rewrite the lyrics completely yeah usually Uh, that
3: was the way they would take the tune keep the tune kind of the way it was and then just put their own lyrics in or do different verses um and make it their own but one of the things that so
2: reminiscent of woody guthrie's this land is your land
3: oh right
2: which the melody of that uh completely new lyrics but the melody was taken from a carter's family song right. and the carter family song actually came from a song catcher who you know was out in the appalachia you know searching around for old folk songs that mm, uh, hadn't been recorded mm-hmm. yet so oh, yeah. so kind of kind of like that
3: it's folk i mean you know that's, the yeah, folk that's well that's how folk that's lore,
0: how things folk, went along but right, you know right. b- before before recordings recorded, right so uh, let's get
3: to that yeah So yeah, that was one thing that changed uh, all of this was that people were recording a lot of these, what they called uh, race Race music, old time music. Well, and, uh, country
2: started that way, yeah. uh, you know. Where uh, the first iteration of taking uh, Alexander Graham Bell's, uh, you know, new device and uh, and recording everything, it it all you know started at the very high end. So a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of opera and uh, symphonic music uh, was first, and then you know somebody figured out that hey, uh, you know, if we uh, you know we record you know the country music or the the music of the people. That would go over as well, and mm-hmm. and then of course you now you start dividing, and that gets you to uh, the black music, and right. uh, they they called it race music at the
3: time, right? Yeah. And there was one uh, one label uh, called Vocalion yeah, at that Vocalion, time, yeah. And the uh, recording director was somebody called Satherly, but um, more importantly, there was a record store owner in Jackson, Mississippi, named H. C. Beer, who um, was kind of a talent scout, and he was very interested in this kind of music. And he even put out newspaper ads asking people, you know, to come in to a recording session. Well, Robert missed the first call, but he found out what this guy was doing. And he traveled to Jackson, Mississippi, and offered himself up to H.C. Spear. And Spear decided to make a demo of one of Johnson's songs. And that song was Kind-Hearted Woman Blues. And the approach, which he recorded... Later, and, and this recording session, in his first recording session in San Antonio, displays the approach of it's based on several other songs of the day, but he rewrote it, changed the tempo, and synced his guitar closely with his voice, more so than other people did. So while he's playing a lead on the guitar, he's singing the same thing with his voice. And he also added a guitar riff, which was unusual for that time to have you know, a guitar break and a song. And, uh, you know, he considered a composition because he had done so much work on it. And unlike other people, he didn't change his compositions. Once he, he put it together and he yeah, was satisfied with that it, was that it. was it. And right. he considered mm-hmm. himself a, you know, a writer. Mm-hmm. So that's what we get on a Kind-Hearted Woman Blues. So this was his first demo. And let's have a listen.
2: All right, I'm going to add a little something to the end of that, and uh, again to prove just the leg the legacy, the lasting influence of this guy, George Thorogood's going to take the second half.
3: Oh, cool.
1: I got a kind-hearted of woman. Anything that's worth for me. Baby
3: certain about whether he could sell Robert Johnson to the label because the guitar blues were kind of going out of popularity. Oh, later at this in the time. 36,
2: 37 yeah. thing. And just so I can add on, because we, we mentioned Vocalion, But, you know, definitely O.K., Victor, Gannett, and Decca uh, were also in those labels. Yeah, Yeah, and Spear was a talent scout for any of those record companies. Right.
3: Oh, that's interesting. The guitar blues were kind of being uh, replaced by the more modern city blues, of, say, oh. Bill, Big Bill Brunsey, Memphis yep. Mini, yep. and they yep. featured yep. accompaniment... Chicago, the Chicago stuff. Right, right. by mm. sidemen playing mm. yeah. horns, piano, mm-hmm. bass, and drums. Mm-hmm. But, which you would
2: get in the city. Right, uh... because you have more
3: people and you're more stationary, <laughs> yeah. too. You know? You're not
2: traveling right. those country roads from uh, you, juke you, joint you. to juke joint, right? Yeah, you
3: can't carry a piano on your back. Mm. Right. Um, so there was one thing that was happening during this time that, that encouraged him to back Robert Johnson, which was that... That there was a global jukebox market and i never knew jukebox was named after the
0: the juke the, jukes,
3: the juke yeah. joint yeah. yeah Um and he thought that would be a good vehicle for johnson's music so he sent the demo to vocalion and told him that robert that somebody would find him if they wanted him which seems a kind of you know it's like they would just go out into the country and look for him, but he was still very much part of his Memphis family. Hello,
2: ma'am. Um, yes, I am looking for Robert Johnson. Is he uh, available? Never heard of him. Hello, ma'am. Yes, I am looking for Robert Johnson. Is he available? Well. Hello. Um, yes, ma'am. I've been looking for... Oh, he's here. Excellent. Try his Memphis
3: family. He was still in, you know, big part of his Memphis family. So apparently he left information that he had a family in Memphis where he could, somebody could leave a message for him. So that worked out for Robert. And uh, he went to uh, San Antonio. Now, interestingly, oh, this. Oh, so uh, this is 36,
2: then. Yeah. Somebody okay.
3: from the label, uh, Ernie. Ertley, and his wife drove to Memphis to pick Robert up and drive him to San Antonio, which was a three-day trip, and they were white, and he was black, and that was extremely unusual. They had to be very careful driving through the South, through Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas in order not to get killed or harassed or whatever. So they put Robert up in the front to pretend that he was their chauffeur. That was the only way they could all travel together. And one of the reasons that the label chose the southwest for recording was because it was close to other markets in the southwest and Mexico there was lots of Mexican talent there were white, you know, string bands.
2: Yeah, they were and, bringing people into that location. It wasn't uh, that they decided that that was the perfect place to record Robert Johnson. No, yeah, right. That was the yeah. place you had yeah. to go. Yeah. And it
3: was cheaper than New York City. Yeah. You know, to have a place, you know, operations there. And uh, they would record all of these Mexican and you know country string bands and black music for the jukebox. The dime store and the department store markets, because you know they were like cheap. Yeah, you cheaper, could buy something for versions, twenty-five yeah. cents. You know, a little yeah. forty-five, uh, two songs on it. But the musicians only got a flat rate. They didn't get. There was no such thing as royalties. And in <laughs> fact, they preferred it that like that because they were suspicious of these white people that right. were recording them, and they thought you know I'll just I don't take know.
2: a I'll just take a bag of cash. Yeah.
3: Are they gonna like really track me down and give me the five cents for that song play? Mm. Probably not. Um. Yes, I'm looking for Robert Johnson. I have his check. <laughs> you keep startling me when you do that. I'm like, who's honk? Who's knocking? <laughs> it's ice. No. Um. Yeah, he had a little trouble in San Antonio. He got roughed up by the police and had to spend the night in jail for being a vagrant because before the recording session, he went out on the street corner to, you know, make a little money,
2: Oh, and they were having
3: none of that, Uh, even though he tried to tell them, I'm not a vagrant, I have a job here in the city, uh you know, and um, yeah, he had to call his employer at at the hotel where he was having breakfast, and the guy gave him 45 cents for breakfast after he bailed him out of jail. And told him to stay out of trouble. But then Robert called him up later and said, I'm lonely. And the guy said, so what? And he goes, well, I'm lonely and I'm lacking a nickel. This woman I'm with wants 50 cents for her pleasure with her. And I I don't have the extra nickel. So he had to give him a nickel so he could have a good time. And That's uh, very rock and roll. Yeah so yeah so he came into the um studio and i think he recorded like 10 or 12 songs in one day which was quite laborious because yeah. they had to be under 3 minutes they were carefully timed and they had to do uh like three takes they would do a main take a backup take and then something in a different tempo like so if you recorded it and it was three minutes and 10 seconds and you had to cut out a verse yeah so they would do different versions of the recordings
2: and because it had to fit on the uh, on the acetate yeah and I mean, there, was they, no you... no. there was no editing there was no after the fact no. editing either. No, it had no. to be perfect yeah. Right. yeah yeah and i think the songs that they recorded in uh, san antonio were come on in my kitchen kind-hearted woman blues i believe i'll dust my broom crossroad blues and terraplane blues
3: yeah, at least. The uh, and then Last Fair Deal mind. Gone Down. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, a Last yeah. Fair Deal Gone Down. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. So um, I believe I'll Dust My Broom was made more famous by Elmore James in 1951. But Robert Johnson was one of the first people to record it. And by the way, when he went in to do these recording sessions, they didn't want him to do any covers because they already had a recording of Bessie Smith doing blah, 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 blah. Um, even though Robert Johnson could do those things. So really all of the recordings are blues that he did during the two sessions that he did. Yeah. So for this one, he, he slid his fingers up the neck to provide a triplet riff against the driving boogie bass He was the first blues player of his day, like I said, to use the boogie bass of a piano. And after that, it became standard in Chicago blues. And there's also reference to the hoodoo or the hoodoo slash voodoo practice, which was big in the Delta, of dusting salt and pepper or magic powder out the door after someone leaves when you don't want them to come back. So you're setting up a a magical barrier with this uh, dusting of the broom. So the authors believe this was also a reference to the hoodoo practice of the day.
2: All right, let's play, I Believe I'll Dust My Broom. And uh, we'll start with Robert Johnson's uh, version. And then let's play a little of that Elmore James version. Oh, okay. (coughs) Okay.
1: Just my broom Good friend the black man you've been loving. Good friend can get my room.
2: Yeah, a big difference from Robert Johnson solo uh, doing both parts, and then now Elmore James with a band behind
3: him. Right, right, which is much more powerful in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, but, now that's you know. getting
2: to be some rock and roll right there. Right, <laughs> exactly. Definitely. Yeah.
3: So another um, tune that he recorded at that time um, used an original open tuning that he invented and that he would let no one else see, but... Uh, except
2: for Keith Richards. But... He liked Keith Richards. Yeah, right. You know, Keith, he, he, Keith's been around since the beginning oh, yeah. of time. <laughs> That's true. I'm sure he was in the room.
3: He got some uh, eternal life there. He got a few extra rolls on the dice. <laughs> um, so the song that he used this open tuning was Rambling on My Mind. And they know they know the open tuning now because they... They did a com- somebody did a computer analysis of Robert Johnson playing the song to try to figure out how he tuned his uh, and guitar. It, it didn't
2: work in standard tune. And right.
3: independently, another blues guitarist figured it out herself just through trial and error and they matched Ah. what they figured out so i thought that was
2: fascinating well let's take a minute and talk a little bit about the fact that and and this goes into the mythology uh, of robert johnson's life is he was very secretive about his playing. oh yeah uh, especially later on in his life and uh and i believe that when he was recording in san antonio there was a a cat who kind of was like hey that's that's interesting what are you doing and he like turned around and he played the song but like in the corner so yeah. that guy couldn't see it. It was right? one of
3: the Mexican bands that came in to record yeah, after him. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, wow, that what's that? We want to see how you do that and he wouldn't show them. Yeah. 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 And he,
2: he would do that in uh in, in the in the juke joints as well. Uh, maybe not, you know, away from the audience But he, he would kind of, you know, try to hide some of his tricks
3: Right, from which, other guitar players Yeah, which he yeah. felt
2: was, uh, you know, uh, unique And, and made, him, uh, made him stand out and special
3: Yeah, and probably they surmise that Even though he doesn't have any other recordings With this type of tuning on it That he most likely used it in performing with other songs Because you wouldn't retune yeah, just your song. guitar right, right. You know, like just yeah. for one song
2: probably no. Not unless you got multiple guitars yeah. with you.
3: The other feature of this song was that he used a bottleneck slide, slide which yeah. uh, had a combination of origins from the diddly bow that I was telling you about that they used to use on the sides of buildings and stuff. And also – Tunings from the Mexican uh, music and also the Hawaiian sound that was popular at that time. So yeah, all these Hawaiian things came key. together mm-hmm. to make this really cool sound. And did you know the Mexicans brought the guitar to the Delta in the ni- in nineteen hundreds? Yeah, then? I, I actually do.
2: Yeah, because a uh, Martin guitar. I know the Martin guitar story uh, pretty well. And uh, you know, of course, it was originally Martin was C F. Martin was making them for accompaniment in uh, chamber type music, and then. Uh, he discovered early on, being in America, that, uh, you know, there was a, a Spanish right. um, need. And he started making a ton of guitars for Spanish artists. Right. And that's that's really where the guitar began to take off in America outside of the chamber music is on the, the Hispanic guitar playing.
3: Yeah, that's really cool. The other thing about this song is he, it features a piano turnaround at the end of the 12th bar, which was unusual but something that was added to blues music and is very super common now. I mean, you wouldn't have a blues song without a turnaround at, it at the end of the 12th bar. And he also used the damping effect on the bass strings. That was another thing uh, he used on this song. And it's certainly autobiographical because rambling was what he did. Yeah. You know, they constantly rambled. And uh, somebody said his home was where his hat was. And even then, a lot of times he didn't even know where that was.
2: (laughs) Well, there's a song right there. Yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So let's listen to it.
2: All right. Let's listen to "Rambling on My Mind." Uh, we'll start with Robert Johnson, and then we'll move over to John Mayall's uh, Bluesbreakers, oh, uh, a awesome. you know, big, big English uh, rock and roll band, uh, early '60s. Uh, just as Robert Johnson is becoming well known uh, again, and we'll get into that, I'm sure, in the story. Mm-hmm. Just comes with the territory of being a, a, a professional musician. Is yep. uh, you know you uh, you do a show and you're off to the next town, right? Yep.
3: So the next uh, song we're going to play is called Terraplane Blues." Um, I didn't know that it was uh, the name of a car, but it is. It's it's inspired by the blue car he had walked by so many times before in Memphis and very flashy and unusual because most people were still driving Model Ts around that time. And the it was very popular. This was his hit, basically. His only hit the, the was Terraplane yeah. Blues. Yeah, yeah I think made, I
2: think it only sold like uh, 5,000 copies. No,
3: it, sound, it sold over 10,000 copies, according to these authors. Oh. And so that was considered a big hit. Well, that's new information. And one of the, um, one of the reasons they think is because there was a lot of ribaldry and sexual innuendo uh, that was becoming more popular in all kinds of music, but also that the America was becoming fascinated with cars, and this was a song about cars. Yeah, and uh, there was the first again. Instruction this is starting to sound like a lot of rock and roll here. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Bruce Sex Springsteen, and cars, calling Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Mississippi was very flat, and they just started um, building the first federal highways in the late nineteen twenties. So. Um, This was a super cool song that people really took to and bought a lot of them.
2: Okay, so we'll play Robert Johnson. And of course, you know, we got to play Eric Clapton here somewhere, right? So might as well do uh, Eric, uh, his version of Terraplane Blues. (laughs)
1: I've been gone. And I feel so lonesome. you hear me when I'm on. And I feel so lonesome.
3: you hear me when I'm on.
1: My plane now, you since I've been gone.
2: that's a pretty faithful version uh, of eric uh, doing uh tear plane. uh so um we can do this all day in fact we will uh, almost all day uh, you know th- th- to just show uh, and we'll even get modern i i've, I've got some uh, yeah. some real modern i thought
3: eric version, did so. a really good job on the guitar playing didn't you uh, yeah. he, I, he's okay. He's an okay guitar player. <laughs> I heard he player. was I pretty mean, good. Is, you really think he's one of the greats? Uh, I don't know. He's pretty good. He's pretty Oh, good. man,
2: there are people yeah. having heart attacks right now. Yeah. <laughs> so.
3: so anyway, now Robert uh, had put out a record, and he went back, you know, to his home On area, Vocalion. And he was now a local star. Yeah, Um, And the record company wanted him quickly for another session because they saw his records were selling better than the minimum of 500 to break even. So they they sent word to his family again in Memphis and the recording was going to be in Dallas and they sent him a one-way uncashable ticket because they knew that people might need money and they might cash out the ticket and not show up to the recording studio. And it was a really big, big time in uh, Dallas. At that time, it was uh, June celebration and there was a, an area of town uh that black people uh, lived in you know that they weren't hassled even though most of Texas was kind of run by the KKK but the area You think yeah. 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 So he started recording, and even though it was only eight months later, the songs on this session were actually pretty different in style, tone, and message. They were more autobiographical and introspective, even though he was still using his main four musical styles, i.e., the bottleneck with the open tuning and the signature riff. And then the next one was the regular tune, Straight Ahead Blues. Mm -hmm. And the next one was the Boogie Bass Lines. And then he also did some, uh, oh, on the first recording, some songs like Red Hot Baby, some kind of East Coast, more popular sound, popular music of the day. Um, So one of the songs that I would like to play is called Stones in My Pathway which is a a clear reference to the hoodoo practices of the day. There's a practice called foot magic, where people placed objects in a pattern that the person was going to walk through. And this was actually not just to keep them away, but to cause physical harm. So if you walked through the stones in the pathway, you might like break your leg or get a sore throat or become sick or something like that. One of the lines is, I've got stones in my pathway, and my road seems dark as night. I have pains in my heart. They have taken my appetite. So he's singing about about being basically, you know, having a, a spell put on him.
2: Could be about kidney stones.
3: Yeah. Well,
2: yeah. Anyway, hey, before we start, I do want to mention Don Law, who recorded both sessions. He's the only man to have recorded uh, uh, Robert Johnson, uh, who, you know, went on to a big, huge uh, career uh, with, uh, you know, everybody from Johnny Cash, Marty Robbins, uh, Bob Wills, uh, Johnny Horton, ended up an executive Columbia Records and on and on. But uh, it's just important to to mention uh, Don, uh, who did the recording. For for Robert Johnson, mm-hmm. both in uh, San Antonio and in Dallas. Okay, okay. Stones in my pathway. Uh, you know what? We're gonna do a little Robert, and then, like I said, modern. The hotshot guitar player out these days, Joe Bonamassa. Oh, you gotta play some of that. Cool. I guess-
1: stones in my pathway, And the roads seem dark at night I have pains in my heart They have taken my appetite I got stones
3: So another another song that he did at this time um, was hey what said? about
2: Joe Bonamassa come on
3: oh well that was great okay yay next. Joe <laughs> sorry
2: so now <laughs> we did
3: not know that anybody else had recorded Stones in my past yeah right?
2: that was that's just a sure. few years ago so we're beyond the hundredth anniversary of uh, of said Johnson Oh, yeah
3: that's right let's see so Hellhound on my trail is said to be his masterpiece. The melody was borrowed, but the words and performance were his own. And, you know, obviously, you know, people look at this one and say, oh, look, look, there's that devil again, you know, pointing to some kind of devil uh, partnership or something like that. But, you know, the man had been through a lot of traumatic, I mean, it's probably an emotional hell more than... An actual hell—not that I believe in hell—but anyway, in, on this song he used an open E minor tuning as the, in the original, but he tuned it a whole tone higher, causing him to strain to reach the high notes, which added tension. And also, this is again referring to hoodoo, the hot foot powder, and the foot traffic magic.
2: Well, you know, uh, when hellhounds are on your trail. You gotta do something. You gotta do whatever
3: you can.
1: I got to keep moving, I got to keep moving. Blood falling down like hail, blood falling down like hail. Down that hill, and the day keeps on me. A hell out on my hell
2: out on my so, yeah, you know You said this the hell beginning, and the book is written to dispel a lot of the mythology that came out in other biographies that were mostly word of mouth. Authors who would do their research by traveling back into the uh, the Delta, try to find some uh, of these old guys who knew Johnson back in the day, which would make their memory cloudy mm-hmm. at best, and attach that with the folklore uh, that existed at the time, the uh, secrecy of uh, him with his plane, and uh, some of the imagery of his songs, you know, you get this mythology, right. uh, wouldn't you say? Yeah, the definitely. The Faustian bargain of right. uh, selling your soul to the devil one late night uh, at the crossroads, right. right?
3: Yeah, and we have to remember that the stuff that he recorded is only a small part. Part of his uh, repertoire, repertoire. Yeah. and mm-hmm. these songs at this time were darker than some of the others, and also there were a lot of songs about the devil in those days. That was kind of a common motif. Oh, so, sure, yeah, um, yeah. The next song, he—it's he, like horror
2: he... movies today. They're everywhere.
3: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he, uh, let's see, he only used, uh, you know, like I said, he had a lot of women in his life. Uh, there was one in particular that he promised he would put into a song, and her name was Willie May. And he added that to the end of Love in Vain, where the city blues singer Leroy Carr had covered that. He just moans in the last verse uh, Robert Johnson decided to insert Willie May's name kind of with the moaning just to make it interesting and uh, he wrote the lyrics he based it on a, another guy, this Leroy Carr's uh, melody but he changed the lyrics around to add Willie May and suit you know and the whole thing about love in vain and the uh, red light and you know for my baby, the blue lights for my mind. Is that how it goes? Anyway, and then, you know, famously, I remember uh, the Rolling Stones covering this song. Oh, yeah.
2: Everybody knows that. So, uh, Okay, so let's play uh, a bit of uh, Robert Johnson's uh, Love in Vain Take One, uh, and then we'll transition to uh, the Rolling Stones uh, version uh, from uh, Let It Bleed, I believe. Mm
3: Mm-hmm.
1: in my hand And I followed to the station With a suitcase in my hand Well, it's hard to tell, it's hard to tell When all your love's in vain All my love's in vain And the train Well, I followed up to the station with a suitcase in my hand. Yeah, I followed her
2: Okay, so there you have two recording sessions, right? Uh, I think uh, thirty-six and thirty-seven, and uh, now he's kind of, kind of known uh, in certain circles, right?
3: Right, and he, he, you know, is very popular now back where he came from, and he's making good money going around the jukes. But we'll find that that was kind of a dangerous thing for him to be doing. Now, where, um, he, where
2: he came from, what you mean, is the, he's popular in the Delta. Right. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So John Henry Hammond II, who is a very important person in the oh, music yeah. business, uh, was a privileged white man who had a liking for black music. And he wrote for music magazines. He he discovered, quote, unquote, uh, many famous people, including Billie Holiday, Um, And he wrote about Robert in 1937 because he had heard some of these recordings. And he called Robert Johnson, the greatest Negro blues singer who has cropped up in recent years. Johnson makes Lead Belly sound like an accomplished posier,
0: which is, you know, whoa, he was anything but. Throwing shade at Mr. um, Hammond. You know,
3: he was, John Henry Hammond was one of the people that through I mean you were saying all the different reasons that these myths grew up but it was it it also was a kind of a calculated um you know foray by some white people because this description of Robert Johnson as you know this authentic kind of the noble savage thing that was done with the Indians you know it was a liberal view of black people but it it very conveniently put them into this category of being not cultured, you know, so authentic basically meant a uh, dirt farmer. Uh, yeah, the noble savage. Yeah, that uh, Johnson, sorry, he was yeah. implying that Johnson came directly from being a dirt farmer to being a musician when that was not I, the Again, case.
2: Uh, adding to the mythology of, right. like, he was nobody until that late night when he did his hoodoo voodoo uh, yeah. at the crossroads and, and made a sudden, deal with the devil, and
0: now he is a famous guitar player.
3: Yeah, that's right. So that was kind of one of the beginnings of this whole mythology going out into the world. Um, at at this time, Robert did do a lot of traveling, and he went with his buddy, Johnny Shines, who was also a musician. They worked their way up through Chicago and Detroit and New York, and um, he was actually, um, you know, heard himself on jukeboxes so he was known and he could find work almost anywhere because now that he had, you know, recordings, people knew more about him. And in fact, um, when he got into the cities, he realized the electric guitar was kind of a big thing. That was introduced in 1936. Is that correct, Christian? The? Uh, The electric guitar.
2: The first electric guitar? Well, Uh, as being
3: popular, I guess, in playing in the city at the time. Um,
2: Yeah, if you have like the frying pan, the early Rickenbackers, which weren't quite what, what Les Paul came up with. Uh, yeah, I guess you know. So that was mid '30s. Yeah, 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 yeah. The first uh, Spanish standard guitar uh was electrified in 1934. So, yeah. Uh, but it's it's not till 1940 that you have Les Paul uh create his log guitar. Yeah. So that's after Robert Johnson. Yeah, death, and so.
3: actually, it's a moot point for Robert. Johnson. Throw me on the spot there, Jesus. Because he you know, didn't have any need for an electric guitar. Was right. he, he had nowhere to plug it in. Right. You know, most of the plantations did not have... Electricity. Electricity. Oh, yeah. and, or, and, or the street corners. Yeah. Um, and he couldn't carry an amp around with him either. And he also, he didn't like, you know, he was used to playing the acoustic guitar. He didn't feel like the electric guitar did what he wanted it to do. And... Uh, it's that, a
2: whole new style of playing uh, and all that. So, yeah. So... Uh, he was uh famous and uh you know in his own right uh mm-hmm. and uh, was happy with what uh, what he was doing he'd mastered something and you know, he probably just said, ah, I don't need that newfangled thing. Yeah,
3: yeah. And he was only, you know, 26, 27, uh, yeah. but, you know, he's already set in his ways. Well, that, may, yeah. that
2: might have changed if he'd survived. Sure. Uh, I, you God know. Na- I mean,
3: that's a whole nother book, you yeah. know, what would yeah. Robert Johnson have done if he lived? Yeah. We don't know. All right. Um, unfortunately, the record label did not ask him back to record more because, you know, like I said, uh, even before his first recording, the uh, guitar. Our acoustic guitar, bass, blues were kind of going out of style, you know, so they, they never asked him back. Um, and then he was around this time diagnosed with an ulcer in Memphis and counseled to stop drinking, which of course he wasn't able to do. Um, And at that time, even knowing that he had an ulcer, he set off for Greenfield, which is uh, between Memphis and Jackson, uh, Mississippi. You know, he's playing around at the Jukes. He met a married woman named Beatrice Davis. Her husband worked at one of the Jukes, and he found out that they were having an affair. And he put mothballs in the alcohol uh, that his wife served to Robert Johnson. Mm, yummy. Now- they, they dissolve inside the liquor. This was kind of a common practice just for making people sick. It wasn't intended to kill people. It just made them ill, like even used in bars to get rid of drunks because you know if the drunk was obstreperous and, and really, really wasted, they would put this stuff in their drink and they, they would get sick to their stomach and leave. But because Robert Johnson already had an existing ulcer, And also, they called no syphilis. Maybe. No, I don't think so. And he suffered from esophageal varices, which uh, something in the esophagus, which isn't good. Uh... So uh, the poison actually caused him to hemorrhage, and this was the beginning of his end. And he was not offered a doctor because they didn't have doctors and the people around, I mean, they had doctors, but the people around him were like, well, we don't really want to get met, mixed up in something that may turn out to be a murder. So uh, we'll just put him in the back room and let him sleep it off. Um, and a couple of days later, he actually had a major hemorrhage and died of, uh, you know, bleeding out um, on somebody's plantation. Some nice person yeah. had taken him back to their house and, And he died on the plantation, and the overseer didn't want to do an investigation because they didn't want to be implicated in his death. So they just said, oh, somebody died on our plantation, and they bundled him out the same day because, you know, they didn't leave bodies around in those days. They had no Um, embalming. And let's just
2: say August 16th, 1938.
3: Uh, Stuck him kind of unceremoniously in uh, a grave at a churchyard and um the cause of death on his death certificate which one of our authors discovered was um no doctor and even though you mean uh, not
2: death by misadventure
3: yeah no that would be, that would have been much better
2: <laughs> poisoning uh, yeah his sister
3: came down and was very upset and wanted a, a an investigation done so they did an inquest but they came up with the fact that he had died of syphilis but his 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 symptoms had no relationship to syphilis at all. It was just mm. something I think mm. they made up mm. to, you know, get through this unfortunate incident.
2: And it's too bad because he was about ready to really hit the big time. Right. Because uh, John Hammond, who you mentioned earlier, was putting together a uh, a big concert uh, at uh, Carnegie Hall. Uh, from Spirituals to Swing, which was going to take place uh, in December of 1938. And he reached out to uh, to Johnson to come up to uh, to play in, uh, in that show. Right.
3: And unfortunately, Johnson was already dead. He was, yeah,
2: yeah. He'd, he'd already He'd
3: actually put him on the time. flyer, too, thinking, oh, you know, I can get this guy to come up for sure. Yeah. But didn't, like, consult with him before he put him on the flyer and then uh, – they uh he incorporated Johnson into the concert by playing a couple of his recordings and uh, by reading uh, an article about him that he had written, at which further actually built this mythology because the songs that he chose were what he wanted people to think that he had found this authentic, Kind of um, dirt backwards. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, person. So he didn't play some of his more kind of oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sophisticated, uh, yeah, uh, arrangements sophisticated from... um, mm-hmm. songs. So what he chose to play that time was Preachin' blues and walking blues, and they were more uh, derivative pieces from more back from the Sun House tradition, and not the more modern thing that he was more famous for. I I think the word I was looking for was primitive. The white liberals, you know, wanted to kind of portray the black musicians as being primitive.
2: Yeah, I could see that. Um, And then uh, that's it from uh, 1938 until 1961, when Columbia... Uh, records at the insistence, I believe, of John Hammond's son, mm, mm, uh, mm-hmm. puts uh, the first package together of uh, of Robert Johnson's material. Right, right.
3: Sixty one, King of the Delta Blues Singers. Yeah, released by Columbia, and they called him a king. Give gave him. Much wider popularity and brought him to young whites, especially in the folk music field, because mm. of the finger picking guitar style and everything and that was the first time they'd actually heard the delta blues, you know the young generation nineteen you know sixties kind of pre hippies time period,
2: yeah uh, and you know that that sets off uh, all of these other uh a a lot of british players that we played today you know learning these robert johnson songs Mm
3: -hmm. yeah yeah and that
2: was only volume one that was only the first half i I think it was a a second set came out 10 years later uh with the rest of the the songs from uh the uh uh, the two recording sessions Mm
3: -hmm. yeah i've seen them both on spotify yeah 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 yeah. so that's our robert johnson should we play preaching blues I don't know.
2: I guess we should play some Preaching Blues. What do you think? Just to show kind of
3: what what John Hammond thought was, you know, indicative of Robert Johnson in that day.
2: Yeah. All right. So let's play Robert Johnson's Preaching Blues, and then let's play another new act uh, that's out and about and getting some press these days called Larkin Poe. Mm All right. There's a full education in uh, Robert Johnson. Uh, So uh, you must have loved the book.
3: Yeah, it was quite interesting. I, I really, having been an anthropology major myself, I really enjoyed the part about, you know, the discussion about folklore and folk music and how blues You know, was uh, was seen in the Delta. Yeah, the microculture that was going on there. Yeah, and the whole hoodoo Mm -hmm. thing was Mm -hmm. really, and how cultures mix. Mm -hmm. You know, to make new uh, rituals and stories, and you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, even
2: even to the point where you said that the lighter-skinned African Americans could play in this middle ground, right? uh, Between you know, whites and uh, and darker-skinned African Americans, which again is just absolute ridiculousness but th- that's the way it was yep yeah, that's for so, sure. yeah. but uh, man imagine uh, how much music we wouldn't have if it wasn't for Robert Johnson in his uh, short career
3: that's I know he, he did so much and you know before age 27 like many of our musical heroes Jimmy Janice Jimmy Jammy. Jimmy Janice Johnson. Yeah.
2: Right, 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 right. All right, all right. So, um, geez, what do we play on the way out? Uh, oh. what, do you, what do you want to do here? I right, We got to play Eric Clapton's last fair yeah. deal gone down. Yeah,
3: that's a good one. Okay. See y'all.
2: Say goodbye. Ah,
3: goodbye. Goodbye, Gracie. <laughs> goodbye, George.
1: It's the last
0: Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Co-host, Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology.